Hello, EB Online Church family. Whether you are watching us from your couch or our campus or even someone else's kitchen, wherever you may be, thank you so much for making us part of your day. Last week, we highlighted in yellow and, and we then underlined in red two words from Acts chapter 2. Just two words that we said gave flesh and blood to all the theology that was about to follow. The words are found at the beginning of, of verse 14. And it simply says, Then Peter. Now these are two words that you and I can relate to more than any others in this chapter. These are the two words that give us hope. These are the two words that prove that there is always a second chance. Because yesterday's terrible failure does not disqualify you from today's godly service. Now that's good news. Now today we're going to return to Acts chapter 2 and have some time of study. As you open up your Bibles, let me remind you kind of where we've been. It's the epic moment of Pentecost. God is in the process of redeeming His creation. On this day, the Spirit of God empowers the apostles to declare the Messiahship of Jesus. But the people, well, they're told that they had rejected the very person that they had waited centuries for. We just killed Jesus? What are we going to do? Now what? And it's Peter, the same Peter who 50 days earlier had denied even knowing Jesus. It is this same Peter who offers them the gospel of the second chance. Don't panic. Don't run. Face the scandal of the cross and repent. Be washed in Jesus' name. And this promise is for you and for your children, for as many as the Lord will call. And, and as many as 3,000 people accepted Peter's message. I mean, this is one of those woohoo moments. Because from here on out, nothing about humanity's relationship with God will ever be the same. Now Luke, who's the author of Acts, does something here in our text for the first time that he will do another eight times as he finishes the story. He gives a summary. He's like an impressionist painter. He's not looking at the intimate details. He's only going to deal in the broad strokes, showing us what this new group of believers look like. Something really big had just happened, and Luke wants us to step back and not miss the forest for all the trees. And I don't want to get too captivated by one detail, but I do want us to be able to stand back and see this impressionist painting by Luke. So go ahead, take your Bibles, and look with me at verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Those 3,000 that had received his message. Now, as, as he frames this moment, what is it that strikes you? What do you see? Now, for me, I'm just fascinated by that first word, they. Now, Eugene Peterson, in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, says our membership in the church is corollary to our faith in Christ. We can no more be a Christian and have nothing to do with the church than be a person and not be in a family. It's part of the fabric of our redemption. You see, redeemed people become they. Not, not just I, but but they, God, by the very nature of redemption, draws us together. It is part of the very fabric of redemption that you and I belong together with other believers. And, well, as believers, we must fight every day the pull that, that is dragging us into spiritual isolationism. That battle it was so important before COVID, and now it's even more imperative. You and I were not meant to do life alone, but there is this pull especially within our American culture. 
There's this desire to be self-made and self-reliant, and it actually works against our best interest. It's one of the reasons that, that many of us and even our neighbors have had difficulty adopting the habit of wearing a mask during this pandemic. In the U.S., health officials are asking people to think about the collective good in a country that's rooted in individualism. Jay Van Bavel is an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University, and he recently made the following observation in an article for USA Today. He said, if you look at countries that are more collectivistic, people feel the pressure to go along and, and do what's good for the group. But then he noted, here in the United States, we have traditions of individualism, which most of the time are great, but in a context of a pandemic are not so great and often very dangerous for everyone. And it's this tradition of individualism that is so dangerous to the church. We are not meant to be alone. Now, now speaking of alone, have you seen this TV show that's called Alone? It follows the self-documented daily struggles of 10 individuals as they survive in various wilderness locations for as long as possible using a limited amount of survival equipment all by themselves. The contestants, or as I like to call them, the crazy nuts, each select 10 items of survival gear from a pre-approved list and are issued a kit of standard equipment, clothing, and first aid supplies. They're also given a set of cameras in order to document their daily experiences and emotions. Attempting to live in the wild for as long as possible, these cuckoo for cocoa puffs, they have to find and build shelter, they have to do, endure extreme isolation, and even psychological distress. The process begins in mid to late autumn, and this adds time pressure to the survival experience as the approaching winter causes temperatures to drop and food to become scarce. With the exception of medical check-ins, the participants are isolated from each other and all other humans. Now they may tap out and, and leave at any time or have to be removed due to failing a medical check-in, but otherwise, I mean, it's all about living with me, myself, and I until someone on a helicopter arrives with your family to say, congratulations, you've stayed the longest. Here is your $500,000 and the number of a really good psychiatrist. Now, now get this, the contestants are even warned at the beginning that the show might last for up to one year. Now, some of you might feel that after working from home and self-quarantining for the last five months, that you are a contestant on this show. And I can hear some of you introverts asking how you can sign up for the next season. But what you discover as you watch this show, you begin to realize that no matter the ingenuity and fortitude of each contestant, hey, people are not meant to be alone. So what do redeemed people do? Well, they come together and devote themselves. Now, what does that word devoted mean to you? Perhaps words like committed, faithful, Relentless, dedicated, and singularly obsessed come to mind. In Greek, the word encapsulates the idea that you grab hold and you do not let go. I mean, you are tenacious, you are unyielding. And I want you to think about this in terms of church. Even when the church is imperfect, even when the church is going against the things that, that I want, there is something that is going to override that. I am going to be obstinate about it. I'm going to hold on and not let go. I'm going to be devoted today. Now, here's where we run into a problem. We don't like to be devoted to anything but ourselves. But redeemed people 
Well, redeemed people let go of themselves and they cling to others who are also redeemed. It is the design of God. As Luke paints a picture of these early believers, he, he shines light on what these people as a group were obstinately, tenaciously clinging to. When things were, were going their way or when things were not going their way. When it was sunny or when it rained, when, when there were tests and interviews and projects and deadlines, when there was peace and chaos, when, when they were relaxed or overwhelmed by the pressures of this life, Luke shows us that they tenaciously clung to four areas of action. It is how redeemed people live and survive. Luke says they held tightly to the apostles' teachings. Now, it doesn't take a lot of spiritual gymnastics to connect the dots that Many things the apostles spoke have become what we call scriptures. What was first communicated orally was put into words. Most of the New Testament was written by an apostle. The other letters were written by someone who, who traveled with an apostle, like Luke who traveled with Paul or like Mark who traveled with Peter. And these first century believers, man, they clung to these words. So, does the word of God have a primacy in your life? Does it serve as one of the major priorities of your life? It's not really hard to discern. How much time do you spend in it? I mean, this counts, by the way, what, what we're doing right now, but it's not enough. I mean, you spend hours a week with social media, hours letting the world teach you things. How much do you allow for God to teach you? You know, later in his life, Peter would, well, he would have two letters that would end up being preserved in, in our New Testaments. And he would say, crave pure spiritual milk. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. These people had just experienced a seismic shift of their soul. They have called on the Lord. They have tasted and He is good. And now they're saying, well, now what? What do redeemed people do? And Peter says, like infants, you drink in the things of God. Do you have that type of teachable, obstinately focused heart that just gravitates to the Word? How much time do you read it? How much do you memorize it? How much do you meditate on it? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Fellowship, it it has this meaning, it has to do with words like common interest, sharing life, caring for one another while together, intimacy, togetherness. Are you starting to see a picture form? This is something that you participate in. You don't just show up and attend. Where did we ever learn from God that you just go to church? You will not find that phrase anywhere in Scripture. But you will find love one another. You will find forgive one another. You will find be kind to one another. You will find get together and live like Jesus in the presence of each other over and over and over. If you are a redeemed people, then there are no spectators. You do not just attend. You get involved, not merely in ministry, though that's great, but in life. They clung to the apostles' teaching. They clung to their fellowship. And they held tightly to the breaking of bread. This idea is probably the most enigmatic for us, but it wasn't for those first century believers. There are two basic ideas. The first is that of sharing a meal. Being together with other believers was a time of, of sharing your life. The meals were not merely for the filling of one's belly, but to fill one's soul. They grew in Jesus by sitting around a table and, 
and sharing meal together. They would, in Jewish custom, take bread and give thanks and break it and share it with the people who were at the table. Sounds very familiar to what Jesus did when He, as, as we like to say, instituted the Lord's Supper. In the context of a meal, He paused and said, I want to redefine this moment of being together and point to something very specific. And I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And so he took the bread and he shared it, saying, This is my body. Take and, and eat. And, and he would take from, from that very table one of the four symbolic cups and, and redefine its purpose. It was no longer about quenching your thirst physically. It was quenching your thirst for salvation, your, your spiritual thirst. And he would say, This is the cup of my blood shed for you. Take it and drink it into your innermost being. This phrase, breaking bread, came to be understood as, as that process of gathering around the table, enjoying the meal, sharing communion. And it's this moment to these first century believers, to this community, to this redeemed people, this was a major priority in their lives. This was not incidental. This was deliberate. And it defined who they were. So let me ask you, what does the Lord's Supper point to? It made those people think about one thing. What does it center around? Maybe you're sitting there saying that it's the cross. And you're right. And now I, I know that we place a lot of emphasis around the resurrection. It seems sometimes that we're so busy looking for resurrection that we don't stop to die first. But the bread and cup, when you strip everything else away, are about the death of Jesus for your sins. So think about the implication here. Here are people who tenaciously, obstinately focused on the death of Jesus. What would that do to a together group? What impact would it have on their lives? Now this is something that we as believers do every week. It really shouldn't be a difficult question for us to wrestle with. What impact is there on a group that devotes themselves, holds on for dear life to the bread and cup remembering the cross of Jesus? I believe that if a group of people get together and, and focus on the death of Jesus and really engage in that moment, it makes the togetherness radically thankful. We are radically thankful for God's ultimate act of love. And we are radically committed to the hope that love secured. Also, I realize that, well, I am saved and that, and that we are saved. If Jesus would do this for me, then maybe I should do this for someone else. It makes the group of people sacrificial. We are willing at that moment to shed our individualism and this, I deserve a private life, you stay out. I allow you and I permit you inside my world and I am willing to sacrifice for a life together with you. The Lord's Supper draws us to these things. It's why they held on to the breaking of bread and to prayer, the text says. How often have you quit praying because you just didn't think God was answering or said, well, what's the use? I mean, God's not going to intervene. A few weeks back, I challenged you to pray stubbornly for 10 days, just 10 days. Did you? What was the result? Not necessarily the result in the world around you, but what was the result in your soul? You see, we must recapture the conviction that God is alive and active in our world, that God is involved. And if we pray, Things will happen that would not happen had we not prayed. Through thick and thin, these people, uh, the, the moment they said yes to God, they 
got on their knees and started praying. And it is a testimony to our faith when we pray, not just in our closets by ourselves, but when we, all of us, engage in prayer together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. These were the survival skills of a redeemed people. So let me wrap things up by saying this. We are they. Like those first century believers, we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We have been baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. We have received the promised Holy Spirit. We, like they, have been redeemed by God. So now what? Well, can we, like they, tenaciously cling to God's Word, allowing it to nourish our soul? Can we, like they, obstinately hold to one another, sacrificing our wants and needs for the greater good? Can we, like they, continually share bread and cup, understanding that our communion is to focus on how the cross saves us, us, not just me? Can we, like they, stubbornly pray, refusing to forget God's presence and power. You see, right now we are missing our large gatherings, but we, we don't have to be together in large groups to benefit from redeemed relationships. Luke does not paint a picture in Acts 2 of a first century worship service. Luke paints a picture of first century worshipers. Worshipers who in, in large and small groups on Sundays, Mondays, and all the days that ended in Y survived by devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. We are they. And church, it's time that we act like it.